I'm Jonathan Platt, and you're listening to Direct Line Conversations, the podcast. Nobody makes it to the top alone. Now, you don't even have to try. Your journey to a life filled with purpose and leadership fueled by confidence begins right now. My guest this week is George Mason, the 2020 Abner V. McCall Religious Liberty Award honoree. Reverend Dr. George A. Mason has been the senior pastor at Wilshire Baptist Church since August 1989. His three decades as pastor follow the pattern of his predecessor, Bruce MacGyver, who was pastor at Wilshire for 30 years. George is a nationally recognized faith leader rooted in congressional life. He combines the prophetic and pastoral voices within and beyond the church. He served in leadership roles with the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, Fellowship Southwest, New Baptist Covenant, Duke Divinity School, Perkins School of Theology, Faith Forward Dallas at Thanksgiving Square, and other local and global ecumenical and interfaith endeavors. He's also the founder and president of Faith Commons, a multi-faith, multi-ethnic nonprofit organization committed to promoting the common good from a faith perspective. And on top of all of this, George is also the host of the Good God Project, a weekly audio and video conversation sponsored by Faith Commons. He's a frequent op-ed contributor to the Dallas Morning News on t- subjects of public interest from, sorry, I'm going to start uh, again right there at the podcast. On top of all of this, George is also the host of the Good God Project, a weekly audio and video conversation sponsored by Faith Commons. He's a frequent op-ed contributor to the Dallas Morning News on subjects of public interest that intersect religion, such as public education, race relations, and predatory lending. He writes a monthly column on public theology for the Lakewood, East Dallas, and Lake Highlands editions of the community news magazine, The Advocate. A native of New York, Mason has been married to his wife, Kim, since 1979. They have three children and six grandchildren. George enjoys all sports, including politics, but especially golf. Here's my interview with Reverend Dr. George Mason. George, what was it like um, a year and probably close to uh, a year and a half ago when you received uh, the phone call that said you had received an award from this you know, random organization, Baylor Line Foundation, even though you're not a, a member of the family that Baylor Line Foundation serves? Well, I mean, how, how much greater an honor, really, uh, to not be part of that uh, family particularly, but uh, nonetheless to be recognized and to say, you know, the, who you are and what you care about is actually part of our family values. And so uh, that was an enormous blessing. Of course, I've been in Texas for a long time, uh, many decades. And uh, even though I didn't go to Baylor, I have many Baylor friends. And uh, being a Baptist, uh, you can't avoid uh, the (laughs) Baptist milieu uh, that is uh, um, so um, impacted by Baylor's participation. Uh, And so, uh, you know, I have, uh, like probably a lot of Baylor line people, uh, that rich appreciation and also that um, uh, struggle uh, with uh, what happens at Baylor at times too. And so uh, it's a little easier for me because it doesn't feel like a family feud uh, as much. It's, (laughs) It's just 
it's more interesting, I suppose, but I don't have any personal stake in it. Um, but uh, but to to be honored, uh, especially with the Abner McCall Award uh, for Religious Liberty, put me into a category uh, with other people who have received that over time. That was truly a great honor um, because of the names of the people uh, that I have admired through the years and that have really worked for religious liberty. I, I couldn't be more grateful. And an interesting side note, John, is that um, Harvey McCall, Abner McCall's grandson, is a member of our congregation. And so that was kind of a, a really sweet little thing uh, to recognize, too. That is very fun. Just off the top of your head, uh, can you recall some of those names in the previous classes that, that you oh, recognize and, and honor? Absolutely. Uh, Chet Edwards, who was, who was there, uh, would be one of them, a uh, former uh, congressman uh, from Texas, and uh, uh, Amanda Tyler and Melissa Rogers, and uh, I think, um, what, James Dunn, probably. Uh, I'm trying to remember all of them at this point. But, you know, just so many lions of religious liberty that uh, are, are part of uh, the legacy of uh, that stream of Baptist conviction uh, that says that um, we are never finished with this work of religious liberty, that it's not something that we can simply claim for ourselves, but it is a work we have to put ourselves to for the sake of those who are denied the full experience of that liberty. You know, I think what's, what's true about America is that we, uh, we have established some ideals that are targets for us that we say we want to live up to these things. And we know we've never fully done so. Religious liberty is one of those things that um, has is always going to be a project because the dominant culture has become uh, fragmented more. Uh, to, to say that we're part of uh, a, a religious culture that used to be almost entirely Christian, and it may still be a kind of default civil religion, but now through immigration and through uh, the uh, awareness of our uh, neighbors who are Jewish and Muslim and Buddhist and Hindu and uh, all the ways that people come to us and become part of this American experiment, uh, we have to uh, make sure that they are not just tolerated, but that they are welcome and that their voices uh, are, are able to be heard and taken seriously and respected, and that our laws conform to our ideals about that. Wow, that's a project that we're never going to be finished with, but is always uh, important for us. Yeah, that's it's so um, it's it's so uh, uh, thrilling to hear you repeat those same words uh, that Amanda Tyler used. That that this is this is a project, a commitment, a goal, a vision. Uh, that she has committed to and one that she knows will will never be finished when we feel like we're finished um you know we've done something something wrong we've That's right. given up too early or we haven't identified those who need us uh, most and and this is a un- it's not a uniquely baptist challenge but it is a a, a challenge that is um important to our baptist identity from the beginning in the, in yes. america 
Uh, And uh, it's actually pre-U.S. Constitution because we were that persecuted religious minority, uh, Baptists were, which gave us a sensitivity to those who were not part of the established religious culture. So the fact that Baptists contributed more than any other religious body to the First Amendment, to the Constitution, uh, is something that we should take up in every generation as part of our continuing project of being Baptist in America. Uh, Unfortunately, when we settled down, especially in the South, and grew in ways that made us hegemonous to the culture, uh, we, we developed a majoritarian mentality that undermined that religious liberty and started seeing people who differed from us as a threat rather than uh, a uh, a mere difference that could, uh, in fact, um, enrich us rather than uh, challenge us uh, or or threaten us, I suppose. Mm -hmm. In, In a way, it sounds like what you're saying is it's not a uniquely Baptist calling, but it is a uniquely Baptist opportunity to continue this. Absolutely. And uh, while I think all Baptists pay lip service to religious liberty, uh, increasingly we're seeing a change of definition in the way people, Baptists, are interpreting that. Could so, could I could I get you to define because because I I totally agree and I've noticed this right. and so there is this there's this sect of um, mm-hmm. our the culture that you and I are in um, that defines religious liberty one way and another that defines it uh, another and so yeah. this this award that that you've received and, and Amanda has received is in a way problematic because it is two different definitions and which definition do you use to honor so as one of the honorees what might you uh, what might the definition you would bring to the table be i would say the the primary understanding that i have of it and that i think the award has historically represented is that religious liberty is a value that has to be defended for everyone equally and that therefore we do not use religious liberty as a means to protect ourselves uh, and not others. So the, the current shift that's taking place is that religious liberty is the claiming of my right to discriminate against someone else on the basis of my religion and that the government should not hold me accountable for that. And that I have therefore the freedom of speech and the freedom to deny people the full benefits of our common life together on the basis of my religious identity and convictions. So religious liberty should give me the right to practice my faith, but not to deny someone else that equal right to practice their faith. So I would say that religious liberty is about liberation. That is, 
working toward freedom for everyone. It's not about the freedom to discriminate. It's about the freedom to liberate. And so this is a shift that's taking place where it feels to me like what's happening is a loss of a sense of cultural power where uh, the values of certain Baptists are saying we feel somehow under assault by the secular culture or by uh, people who have agendas that they wish to foist upon us that we want to resist. So now I not only claim my right to believe differently, but I need you to stop behaving in certain ways so that my right can be enfranchised and defended. Well, that's not what religious liberty is about. It's, it's, it's about my freedom to keep my views, but not my right to determine that yours have to be limited by my religious liberty. I, I've, I've heard in conversations from others that this is a, a topic that you are deeply and personally passionate about. I mean, right. You received an award, so that makes sense. But I'm, I'm also uh, seeing an energy uh, in you that is is not a recent thing. George, when did this, was it in your younger life growing up? Was it in your uh, college uh, life um, or postgraduate life? Or was it once you'd entered ministry uh, and were doing uh, this work that this became such a, a conviction on, on the forefront of your, of your uh, career? So I would say, first of all, it was uh, in me experientially before it was in me intellectually. Uh, and the intellectual piece uh, came about when I became a Baptist and became educated as a Baptist about Baptist history and about why religious liberty is so important. But my early life experiences growing up in an evangelical family as a minority in that sense in New York City uh, was such that I knew that I was um, not part of the dominant culture. So I grew up in Staten Island, New York, which was 94% Roman Catholic when I was growing up there. When I would play Little League baseball or Pop Warner, Warner football, and we'd gather together before the game and put our hands in for a prayer, all of a sudden, everyone was, was saying Hail Mary uh, when I didn't know what the next phrase was even, and the rest of it sounded mumbled to me. Uh, and so she may have been full of grace, but it, there was no grace for me uh, because I was excluded by my non-Catholic faith as a child in that culture. And that, that stuck with me as, why should I also be a Christian but not be able to participate in a community event because the dominant culture was saying, this is the language you must use. And so uh, that minoritarian consciousness stayed with me. I became a Baptist at the University of Miami during my years there. And uh, being in Miami as a Baptist, I was not part of the dominant culture again, because uh, the, the dominant culture would have been, uh, you know, the South American uh, and um, Cuban culture of, of Roman Catholicism and a Jewish culture that was very strong as well there in Miami and at the University of Miami. And, and being part of a Jewish culture 
was something I was not unaware of because there was a, a great deal of Jewish presence in New York. And I've always had uh, some sense of kinship with Judaism for reasons that I think are um, providential almost uh, in a sense, and, and I'm grateful for. But uh, having said all of that, I did get educated at Southwestern Seminary about these things. And what's curious about that, Southwestern was large enough that over time, you could go to Southwestern and you could come out with two very different views of who Baptists were. I just happened to have fallen into the right group of people, in my mind, of people who taught me in this way. And then in my church life and in uh, my relationships, I resonated more with the Baptist Joint Committee and with um, you know, the Christian Life Commission of Texas Baptists and with uh, the, um, the, the efforts of uh, those at Baylor in the law school and, and elsewhere that, you know, really uh, upheld this particular interpretation of religious liberty. So throughout my ministry, I've found these opportunities where I've been able to draw upon that and, and defend it and the like. But look, this is, this is just a public... Uh, witness to uh, the deep-rooted commitment to love our neighbor as ourself. So uh, whatever tradition you're in, it, you are likely to find in your scriptures some uh, admonition that the heart of your faith, not just something that is optional to you, but the heart of your faith is to love your neighbor, uh, to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Religious liberty really boils down to that. Would you really want someone else to do this to you if you were in that position? Well, then we have to create a neutrality that allows that free exercise of religion to flourish in a way that doesn't harm other people by our free exercise, but privileges it in our public life. Very fun. Very fun. So you entered um, into ministry in, uh, or, or excuse me, you, you moved into uh, the, the, the church you're still senior pastor at, Wilshire Baptist. You moved there in 89. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Okay. So, so you would have moved into kind of prominent Baptistness right mm -hmm. uh, at one of the most pivotal points of Baptist yeah. culture. Um, as, as you're beginning to, I was just looking through uh, some of our magazine archives this morning. This year is our 75th uh, anniversary of Bela Line magazine. And there's this uh, from the early 90s. Uh, there, there, I, I just, I don't know how I'd never caught it before, but there's a cover. And it says something like, to our mothers, to our fathers, to um, our grandparents. Um, you know, we, we here at Baylor want to... Um, help promote Baptist life, no matter how many fights we get into. There's a cover that says something, something to that effect. And it, it reminded me how uh, public, right. you know, this, this conflict was and this, and this fight was. And, and I always say, you know, if the, if the Baptists have gone 10 years without a good fight, then, you know, most of them are dead. But when, when you enter um, into Baptist uh, kind of, you know, ministry prominence in that era what was that um, navigating that conflict like? And what are some of the lessons that uh, you still carry with you today 
that maybe you picked up over those four or five, you know, even to, to up to 10 years in the, the big Texas split? Yes. So uh, anecdotally, it's interesting you say that about Baylor and uh, it connects to my answer to your question because uh, the year that Baylor separated from the Baptist General Convention of Texas was, it was a very contentious time. It was very early in my pastorate. And uh, I remember being, uh, you know, uh, the Hamilton musical makes a lot of being in the room, you know, uh, in, in that room where the decisions were being made. I remember being in the hotel room, a, a big suite with President Herbert Reynolds and uh, the group of people who were getting ready to go to the floor uh, in Waco that year for the convention. And that and was 93, I think? It was around 93. I, I can't remember exactly, but that probably is about right. And it turns out I was the first up uh, to speak uh, on the floor of that very big meeting uh, in, um, uh, in the arena uh, there at Baylor. The Ferrell um, Center, yes. Ferrell Center, right. And, um, and, and, and I spoke in favor of uh, Baylor leaving its relationship and becoming uh, free of the BGCT because I had seen what had happened with the takeover of the Southern Baptist Convention and its seminaries and the changes of leadership and what that would mean. And uh, it was difficult. Uh, in fact, I had some professors at Southwestern Seminary, some of my, even my major professor who was unhappy with me uh, because of uh, my statements about what had happened at, at my alma mater uh, as a result. And he was still there and plugging away and trying his best. But, you know, I mean, uh, eventually Paige Patterson became the president of the school. And I mean, school has, uh, has this was not a pendulum swing. The pendulum went to the right and got nailed to the wall. Uh, and Herb Reynolds was smart enough to see, along with other leaders at the time, that Baylor was next. And so uh, they pulled themselves out and we were able to succeed in, in that manner. Now, that doesn't mean I'm, I've been happy with Baylor ever since, uh, frankly, um, you know, just because we're free of the BGCT at Baylor, and I say we, but, um, you know, it, 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 it doesn't mean that all the best decisions have been made about leadership or about, uh, you know, uh, regions who have uh, pushed the, the school, in my opinion, farther to the right than it needed to go. Uh, and I say that because I think strategically and institutionally what happens is then, even if you're not bound by the decisions of a connection like uh, the, the BGCT, you start making decisions based upon money, upon positioning yourself in relationship to constituencies, uh, upon you know, what you think is going to be to your strategic advantage. And that doesn't necessarily operate off of your values and convictions and all of that. You get, you get sucked into the institutional survival thing. And um, so it is what it is. I mean, we all know how institutions operate. And so, you know, e even those of you who love Baylor, you have your uh, lover's quarrel. Uh, with with some of the ways that happens so yeah so so being um uh prominent in that conflict what uh what do you think you walked away from and i'm just kind of putting the two numbers together 
you would have been uh, in seminary during the the S uh, the the Southern Baptist right. conflict, wouldn't you have been? Right. Okay, okay. So that, so you so so your like your education was in the Baptist conflict in the time of that, and then your uh, uh, beginning of the prominence of your career was at the beginning of the Texas Baptist. Oh, conflict. it's been one fight after another. It, it really has. <laughs> And, and for so, me, so know, from from yeah. those from those fights, uh, from the, and maybe we shouldn't use fights like that. That that might be disingenuous. Well, but what 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 do you think from these um, uh, obstacles? What are those leadership lessons and life lessons that you've learned to to keep yourself and your family and those closest to you and those coming behind you uh, safe and steadfast in their personal convictions? So a great question, I think, um, because you can be, you can lose yourself in the in the arguments, in the, uh, the the push and pull of it all. And um, you know, first of all, you, you have to maintain your own personal spiritual life and your own sense that God has called you and that you are uh, who you are doesn't depend upon what other people think of you. So God thinks of you a certain way. And that's the good news of the gospel, right? I mean, honestly, this is the thing that we have to keep reminding ourselves when we start looking around and trying to wonder, what does everybody think of me? And where am I making my place? And how is my identity shaped by these relationships? Wait, your, your primary identity is as a child of God, who, whose soul is unassailably connected to the God who has made you. And that no matter how deep you go in wondering about who you are, you'll never go to a place where it is not loved unconditionally by God and affirmed. So, you know, the noise shouldn't distract you from that sense of bedrock identity uh, in God through Jesus Christ. Your life is hidden in God through Christ. Beautiful. What are, what are some of those practices or rituals that you stick to in order to to constantly remind and affirm yourself of of those convictions well i think uh, in your prayer life in meditation in 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 those times when even if it's just three minutes uh, of being quiet and you know i i like to say um from time to time especially when i become anxious what i do is i i sit quietly and i say the jesus prayer uh that is, uh, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And I say it over and over again. And I'm just repeating those words uh, because there's a humility about it. There's a primacy of Christ. There's a declaration of faith. Uh, there's a recognition that I am a child of God, but I need the mercy of God uh, in that moment. And it, it's a calming effect uh, that reminds me who I am. Um, now, I, I would say that I have the gift from my family of origin of, of feeling as if I belong in the world and that everyone doesn't feel that way. So there's some gift of self-esteem that is helpful uh, that, that some of us have and others wrestle with. And so I'm, I'm blessed in that respect. Um, but I, I also think we need to remind people that... Uh, that, that conflict and challenge and argument and stress and those sorts of things uh, are, are not actually um, the result of somehow 
a failure of the spiritual life or a, a divergence from a genuine religious encounter, that in fact they are part of the religious life, that they are the, the spirit of God in, is always moving in the world and it moves for people, but it also moves against those forces that deny full human flourishing. And therefore, there's going to be pushback, there's going to be struggle, there's going to be all those kinds of things that uh, we should expect. I sometimes hear people, John, who, in, who piously say in the church things like, you know, God is a God of order, not disorder. God is a God of peace, not discord. So when something is controversial, it must not be of God. And I think, wait a minute. Find me a way to justify how that took place in Jesus' ministry, in the apostles, in the book of Acts. It, it's never been that way. So if that's true, then this is not a sign that something is um, wrong. It could be a sign that it's exactly what God is calling us to do. Mm. And, you know, we have to do it with grace. We have to do it with conviction, but we don't demonize people in the process. That would be uh, an unchristian approach to it. Uh, but we shouldn't be afraid of conflict. And that's that's an important thing, I think, for us to recognize, because so many people just, I'm out, you know, yeah. when it gets contentious. Yeah. Okay. And and I'd like to take this uh, a step kind of deeper and move from conflict uh, into uh, personal confidence. So, you know, conflict between us and others, uh, mm -hmm. but, but confidence I've always seen is between myself and myself. Ah. Um, and, and so if, is there a, is there a scene from um, your, your, your wealth of wisdom and experience that you remember that, that really challenged your, your own confidence uh, in yourself and what, what did you do and what have you kept doing since that time in order to keep that confidence and maintain uh, that focus on what you're here for? And, and, and well, well, yes, but thank you for asking that question. Uh, I don't think anyone does this work well who doesn't second guess himself or herself at times in these moments, especially when you're in the midst of, of, of difficult and challenging times. Um, during the course of my ministry over 40 years or so, um, I have been a pastor who has uh, led churches to leave the Southern Baptist Convention and help to form the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship and also ended up leaving the BGCT. They actually kicked us out, but uh, that's okay. But um, to ordain women, for instance, to um, to uh, welcome and affirm as full members of our congregation for marriage and ordination and leadership, LGBTQ folk. Uh, so all of these things were highly contested in their time, uh, full of personal struggle because of your friends in the church and in the denomination. Uh, and uh, just fraught with lots of emotional challenge. And I would say that, that for me, there's the, the part about remembering who you are and practicing spiritual disciplines that keep you grounded in that. But the other part of it, too, is you have to look at the people you're defending and realize that this is not about you, per se, 
you, this is this is about the joy that has been and the full participation of those folks who that has been denied them, and that um, each of us has to be responsible for our neighbor. And so, uh, for example, uh, when we made the decision in our church to um, fully enfranchise our gay members and um, gay and trans members. Um, the the struggle with that was enormous and and the pain of it was the worst that I've experienced in any change that I've led over time. Um, But I would say uh, that nothing I went through during that time can match up with the sense of disappointment, sadness, marginalization uh, that uh, LGBTQ folk have had to deal with their entire lives. So whatever we, I, I got to essentially share in their suffering in order to share in their joy. Well, that's all kinds of Pauline language in the New Testament. It's all kind of Jesus in the book of John. It's, it's, it's very much, if we're shaped biblically by the story of the gospel, then, you know, that's the kind of thing that should allow us to have the strength to make it through those painful times because it's always about the joy that is set before us that allows us to endure that suffering for a season. And that joy uh, is, is, is always what you long for and hope for and, and what you celebrate in seeing in others when you participate in their liberation. That's, that's very interesting. I, I was not expecting um that kind of answer that that answer really shook me i i i appreciate your your work and and your steadfastness in in this um in a in a in a similar vein but not on a similar issue um how do you think some of those previous uh uh, uh conflicts crises you know um and uh, lack of confidence how do you think those prepared you to lead through uh, just, you know, a a totally different year than any of us would have expected (laughs) before, before we got on, you know, you and I were saying uh, that, that hall of fame 2020 was, was, it was kind of like my last event that I've been to. Um, And I'm sure for you, you know, you still, you still had six, seven more Sundays of in-person church uh, following uh, that event. But how, how do you think that uh, everything that you've experienced prior to March 2020 prepared you to lead through the next, you know, I was just looking at it, I think we're at 400 and, you know, 40 something days uh, since we really became aware and communally uh, 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 responding to this. I think that the main thing I would answer to that is that I am not overly anxious about the church because we have been through numerous occasions where people have said to me things like, you, we can't do this because it will destroy the church. Uh, actually, every time we took on hard things, it actually made us stronger. And yes, sometimes people drop out, sometimes they leave, sometimes they get disillusioned, sometimes they disagree and all that sort of thing. It also builds the resolve and resiliency of the people who are still there. 
So COVID has been one of those situations. We don't know where people are a lot of the time. We can't keep track of them as well. We don't see them in the flesh. We don't know what they're thinking. We don't know the level. And I know that as we're about to regather here in a, a few weeks. I was uh, going to ask what your, what your plan right. is. So our timetable is June 6th. Okay. Uh, we're going to regather in person June 6th. And unvaccinated people will not have to wear masks. Uh, sorry, I mean, vaccinated people. Other will way around, yeah. Right. Unvaccinated people will. Uh, but, I mean, otherwise, it, there no limitations because uh, following the science says that we now can regather. Having said that, there are some people who are upset with us because it's taken us so long. There are these other churches. How can they do this? And we can't. Well, the, our values were these things. Uh, and then there were others I was about to say, then they're the other side. There's, there's always the other side. There's know? always the other side. In the same church, you have people for whom this has been a, a long extended trauma. And some of their kids have not had the socialization. They've fallen behind in some ways. And, you know, some people are by nature more protective. Others are more risk takers. We, we, we're all in the same church. Now, as a pastor, I can't know who, where everyone is at all times. But what I mostly have to trust is that the church is not mine. You know, it's, it, in a sense, it's not even ours. It belongs to Christ, and Christ is not giving up on his church. Uh, we see that the church has been through plagues in the past. It's been through pandemics in the past, not in our generation, but in the history of the church. The church has survived. And so... Uh, sometimes we get too institutionally anxious. So for me, the challenge is to say, look, God, I can only do what my part is to do. I'll try to be as responsible as I can be. Um, but this will be a, an apocalyptic time in the literal sense of unveiling and revealing what has always been true among us. We'll be able to see some new things about each other during this time and learn some new things. So we don't know what's coming on the other side. There's a leadership modality before the pandemic, during the pandemic, and after the pandemic. And we'll have to adapt. Uh, but that's what we do, because uh, that's the nature of our faith. Yeah. Okay, George, my last question, and then I've got just some fun ones, just some rapid yeah, fire ones. Sure. My, my, last, my last question, uh, it's... It's in this. It's in the same vein as what you were saying, um, and it's it's when you're faced with an issue um, mm. that you do have, you know, uh, you know, five hundred, a thousand, or or even just four people in the same room or congregation or membership, and there's a split. There's you know, these people are on this side of it. These people are on this side of it. As as the 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 leader of this church body and a leader in the you know big C church and just as um, uh, someone of prominence and influence in the world, uh, how do you approach those issues when there are two sides with well-meaning people? I'm not talking about an issue where it's you know it's clearly one side is is right or wrong. Um, how do you approach bridging that gap? How do you approach bringing those those people together? And are you trying to serve both groups of people, or is there something higher that you're aiming at? Sometimes when I am doing premarital counseling. That's a uh, great example. 
I say to couples, look, um, this is not just about what each of you wants individually, but what the marriage needs, you know, what the, so something new is being born here that before you made your vows, you didn't have to address. Uh, you are, you are creating a new family, uh, that is bigger than your individual desires. So now if I'm in a room with different people in the church who have different views, what I want to do is to just remind them that this is about the church. It's not about whether their particular view wins or loses. So then we have to assume, and I will try to state that I do believe each of you has the church's well-being at heart. You may not win in terms of your point of view. The question is, can the church, can the church be better because we went through this? Uh, and uh, so I think not assuming the worst of motivation for anyone, but assuming they love the church just like somebody else does who's sitting across from them, that's a starting point. Uh, But asking them always, you know, uh, have you considered the other person's point of view here? Because um, I'm going to go back to the LGBT thing. There, There are those who said during that period of time, you know, what's happened here that we have all these people who are changing tradition We've always thought this way, and now the whole, I have to adjust, I have to be, and, you know, part of the question was, wait a minute, um, unbeknownst to you, the convictions of our congregation, the majority has changed, and all these years, you've been in the majority role, and they've had to say, well, I'm here, and I love my church, but my view hasn't prevailed because the majority thinks differently. They've been here faithful to the church all those years. Now their view is dominant in the church. Can't you do the same? You know, can't, can't you find yourself in that minority view, but still love your church, even though it does, your view doesn't prevail? Well, some could do that and some couldn't. But that's where we have to lead people, I think, uh, because... That's the nature of our consensus uh, uh, life together as a community. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Okay. You ready for just some fun questions? All the deep thinking is done, hopefully. Okay, cool. Okay. If you're going to go eat anywhere tonight, you know, you can go anywhere. Um, uh, or or you're going to make dinner or uh, you're going to make dinner together with family. What What's that dish that, that you would want to see in front of you tonight? Mm-hmm. Um, pizza. Um, I'm a New Yorker and um, okay. yeah. love, love pizza. Uh, in Dallas, it would be probably Pizzeria Testa. Uh, it's a, a fun, um, uh, thin crust pizza that, uh, you know, good uh, Neapolitan pizza. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, I see your bookshelf behind you. Um, I'm assuming you're a reader. Uh, uh, so so two, two, two book questions. Uh, right. One of doesn't have to be your favorite. I know that's always like a, uh, you know, a hot seat issue. Uh, one of your favorite books, and then uh, the book that you're happiest that you most recently read. Oh, okay. Um, let's see. One of my favorite books. Um, 
I would say, um, wow, I, I'll just I'll just do a throwback uh, to yeah. 1973, even, and the delight of being introduced to the work of Frederick Beekner, uh, who wrote a little book called Wishful Thinking, a theological ABC. Uh, Beekner just had a way with words, and uh, at a time when I was making a turn from being a more conservative evangelical uh, in my theology to uh, being more um, taken with uh, the faith that uh, was maybe more concerned with those who are vulnerable and those who are outsiders, uh, that was a really um, delightful uh, introduction. Uh, maybe lately, the book that has intrigued me the most is uh, a book called See No Stranger uh, by Valerie Kaur. She is a Sikh activist. Um, so the Sikhism is the fifth largest religion in the world. It's from India, um, Punjab, and there's half a million Sikhs in um, America today. Uh, most people view them strangely. They wear men wear turbans and all of that. Uh, but she's a remarkable person, and uh, this book took me by surprise in how beautiful it was and how uh, much I could find my Christian faith uh, in uh, in this book. And so, um, yeah, I would say that uh, that was a, a rich experience. I'm I'm adding it to my my reading list right now. Okay. Uh, it, it sounds, it sounds really great. I was actually just looking for another memoir uh, this morning. I good. finished, I finished Anne Lamont's uh, latest one a couple oh, of weeks ago. And so this, this like a, yes. So okay. traveling mercies was so great. Wasn't it? Oh, I love it. So many uh, other things, but yeah. Yes. Story yes. Is great. Mm-hmm. yes. I, um, I, I especially love stitches. It's one of oh. those first small books that she came up with. It's uh, yeah. something like a uh, a hand a handbook for healing or something really close to that subtitle. It's and Bird by Bird is one of the best yes. little books for writers. Uh, yes. If if you want a, a book on writing, yeah, yeah, it's it's over there on on that shelf. Uh, I know yeah. exactly where it is. Uh, Good. Okay. So okay, uh, two more. Uh, if you were going to make a mixtape that would define, you know, George Mason, and you were going to give it to to me or a stranger. What what are those you know what are those songs that you're putting on there? Oh, I love this face. Okay, okay, yeah, so, yeah. So this is interesting. So you're gonna probably have to go back to my growing up years in the 1960s and 70s in New York, and now we're gonna start with some rock and roll, right? Okay, yeah, uh, and and we're gonna throw in uh, some Motown also. But, you know, you're going to get uh, the, the Rolling Stones, uh, the Beatles, Led Zeppelin, Deep Purple. Uh, you're going to get, you know, some some of those. And then the Woodstock era uh, yeah. also. Uh, so uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, some of the great stuff coming out of their their, their time. Uh, and uh, so I, I would say those things, uh, Motown, of course, um, Stevie Wonder uh, and Marvin Gaye, uh, and, you know, they weren't all Motown, but but sure. you know, yeah. it, was, it was, you know, just an amazing uh, period of time and, and music. But then uh, then I'm going to move you to um, to jazz uh, and say that um, increasingly I, I came to appreciate jazz and the improvisational nature of it. And and, uh, you know, really the, the the way in a jazz combo, say, for instance, how they pass around the lead of of it and 
and, and support one another. So there's, yeah, there's a leader of the, of the group, but that leader is, is actually always pushing the others to be their best, right? So, um, you know, Charlie Parker and uh, Miles Davis and uh, people like that. So uh, they would be on the list also. Um, and so, you know, a lot of it's just mood music. I have to be honest and say, I'm, I'm a New Yorker. I've never been a country music person. So, I, I, you uh-huh. know, it's not that it's bad. I won't hold it against it's you. It's yeah. just not me, right? So, yeah. Very fun. Very fun. Uh, yeah, Stan, uh, Stan Getz is one of the, the my favorite that, I, that I'll put on. If, I, if I'm trying to do like some deep work, like uh, right. that, that or, uh, or some just, you know, more classical piano uh, music. Uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. And uh, my last question, what in this moment, in this season, uh, or even just in this day, um, what are you most intimately, personally, and powerfully grateful for right now? I have an abundance of blessings in having been the pastor of this same church for nearly 32 years. Um, Ministry is hard, but it's good. And it's been a life that um, I'm tremendously thankful to Wilshire Baptist Church for. For letting me be several pastors in those years as I've been reinventing myself numerous times and I'm not the same pastor I was when I came. Um, and they've let me do that, and we've grown together. Um, and it's shown up in my kids. So a lot of a lot of people who are in the ministry, their kids take it harder than they do, even. And they, uh, well, I I have three kids who love the church. Two of them are um, well. One is my oldest daughter is a seminary grad and is involved in ministry. Uh, and my youngest daughter is in seminary now uh, at Perkins at SMU. And my son is uh, very involved in church and cares about it with his family. They all, they all have a vital spiritual life. And we share a kind of theological outlook among the three kids. And, and it, so it's, it's, it's kind of a family business even. And I give a lot of credit to the to what I like to call uh, the sacred canopy that um, the church, this church, Wilshire Baptist, uh, hung over the heads of my kids and made them feel the blessing of heaven um, by the way they treated them growing up. Uh, And so, yeah, no, I'm thrilled about that. And so great, very, very grateful. I love that, the sacred canopy. George, this has been a just a phenomenal time together. I'm so grateful for you and Thanks your wisdom. Thanks You're so much. Pleasure. I'm Jonathan Platt, and you've been listening to Direct Line Conversations, the podcast, brought to you by Baylor Line Foundation. You can follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Facebook. And if you haven't, hop on over to wherever you're listening to this and follow, leave a rating, and a review. It really does help. Join me next week for another Direct Line Conversation. Thanks for listening.